This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Funding for Igeret Hachuva, the Epistle on Repentance, is provided by Isaac, son of Devorah Mindel. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg Ten thirty-seven, the middle of chapter 4. So he says, in order to understand the concept of teshuva, the Zohar explains that teshuva means to return the hay from God's name. And you have two levels of teshuva, just like you have two hays, two letter, two hays in God's name, yudke vavke. So when a person sins, you disconnect the hay from the vav, and you disconnect the hay from the yud. So the lower level of teshuva is restoring, returning the hay to the vav. And the higher level of teshuva is returning, restoring the hay to the yud. And with this, we'll understand the question that he asked, why is it that there are so many people who sin with equanimity, and although they violated the sin where the punishment is cut, as your life is cut off, and yet they live past 60, past 50, past 60, and live happy lives and sweet lives. And you don't see any effect. How is this possible? So to understand all of this, he says, first, we have to introduce the key to this. The key to this will be found in the phrase, for God's people are part of Hashem. They are part of the four-letter name of Hashem. Thus, describing Hashem's infusion of a soul into the body of Adam, it is written, and he blew into his nostrils a soul of life. And as the Zohar comments, he who blows does so from within him. The metaphor of blowing signifies that the soul of a Jew originates in the innermost aspects of godliness. In the tetragrammation, as shall be soon explained. The verse says that a portion in the song of Hazinu, towards the end of the Torah, the second to the last Torah reading. So it says there that the Jewish people, God's people are part of Hashem. Chelek, Hashem Amai, His nation, His people, the chosen people, the Jewish people are a part of Hashem. What does it mean they're part of Hashem? He says literally that they are, they are part of the four letters of Hashem's name. Now, we found this concept earlier in part one of the Tanya, chapter two, where he discusses the second soul within the Jew, a piece of the divine essence. There he brings a verse in Job, that the, the soul of a Jew is a piece of the divine essence. Here he brings a different verse. He brings the verse from Deuteronomy, the end of Deuteronomy, from the song of Hazinu. There's a reason why he brings two different verses. Because he's bringing out two different points. And there in chapter 2 he's discussing the source 
of the Jewish soul. The Jewish soul originates in the supernal wisdom, in God's mind, so to speak. Just like a child originates in the mind of the father, so too the Jewish soul originates in God's mind, so to speak. Here, he's trying to explain, he's trying to bring out that the soul, not the root and the source of the soul, but the soul of the Jew, as the soul is enclosed in the body and is fully expressed and fully um, encased in the body, that the soul is called a piece of Hashem. So that the Jewish soul is a piece of Hashem, even though we are living a human, human experience, and we have our natural selves and our egos and our physical bodies, and yet, nevertheless, what is our life? What is our energy? What is our life force? It's a piece of Hashem. And that's why he brings the verse from Deuteronomy, because there he's referring to, he juxtaposes the Jewish people and the 70 nations of the world. So he's discussing the Jewish people as they are part of the world. That although they are part of the world and they are a nation, and yet there's something unique and something different about the Jew, that a Jew is Hashem's nation and they are a portion of Hashem, they are a piece of Hashem. They have a piece of Hashem inside of them. Literally, a piece of Hashem's name. Chelek Hashem, Yudke Vavke. And this constitutes their energy and their life source and their soul. And to, he brings the proof. And the verse says that God blew into Adam, he blew into his nostrils. And one who blows, blows from within, deep from within. In other words, there's a difference, there's a twofold difference between how Adam was created and how the rest of the universe was created including the angels. The rest of creation, it says, God said, God spoke, and it came into being. Like the king commanded, and his command, was, his wish was fulfilled. So he said, and the saying brought something else, caused something else to happen. When it comes to Adam, however, it says God blew into his nostrils. It's the difference between speaking and blowing. Speaking is external. You can speak and speak and speak, and it doesn't exhaust you. But when you blow, you blow from within. How long could you blow and hold your breath? And blowing comes from within. So, man's soul, Adam's soul, is a transmission that comes from within. Versus the rest of creation. The rest of the universe, including the angels, is something that God spoke. Speech is external to God. Just like a human being, speech is external. Blowing comes from within. That's one difference. Another difference is that God spoke and His speech brought about, caused this entity to come into existence. By Adam it says God blew and God's breath became Adam's soul. It's not that God spoke and something else happened. God's breath is constitutes Adam's soul. 
So the breath comes from within, and that is man's soul, Adam's soul. So the Jewish soul comes from within, within God, so to speak. And the Jewish soul is a piece of Hashem, has the divine name, God's essential name, which is Yudke Vavke, the name that we don't pronounce. We pronounce it as Adnai. But this essential name, this constitutes the Jewish soul. So the Jewish soul is divine. Not only its origin is divine, its source, but when God breathed into Adam, his actual life force, his actual soul and energy in this physical world is divine. Different than all the rest of creation. And he says, Now God has no bodily form and so on. God forbid. How then is it possible to say that God blew and to speak of a part of himself? However, the Torah speaks as in the language of men. So, of course, God doesn't have a mouth and God doesn't have... We don't mean it in the physical sense. But everything in this world is a parable for spiritual reality. Everything in this world is just a symptom of a deeper spiritual truth. So just like we find in this world, there's a difference, in our own personal experience, there's a difference between speech and breath. So this is a parable. This helps us understand that the same is true within God. There is, so to speak, the external part of God, where God speaks. Just like speech by a person is completely external. You don't need speech for yourself. If you're alone, if you're Robinson Crusoe, who are you going to speak to? There's nobody to speak to. You don't need speech. Speech is... <laughs> you're going to speak to yourself. <laughs> well, you know that story, the famous story. A woman comes to the rabbi and says, Rabbi, I have a big problem. She says, the problem? She says, I speak to myself. The rabbi says, it's not the end of the world. Everyone speaks to themselves. Occasionally, even I catch myself speaking to myself. He says, Rabbi, you don't understand. I'm such a nudnik. <laughs> but the... Speech is primarily for the other person. You don't need speech for yourself. Breath, however, is internal. So speech is ex- completely external to the person. You do speak, you don't speak. To yourself, it makes no difference. It makes all the difference in the world to others because others have no idea what you're feeling, what you're thinking, what's going on inside of you until you speak and communicate. But for yourself, you don't need speech. You know what you're thinking, you know what's going on. So it's completely external. So the whole universe is external to Hashem. Hashem spoke and it came into being, including the angels, all external. But breath is something from within. Breath is life. Breath is the life force. Right? Isn't it? The whole yoga is based on breath. Breath is the life force. Yes. Oxygenates your whole blood, your whole, your whole body. You have very shallow breath. It means you have very... It means you're not, you're not, you're not bring, you, your blood is not oxygen, oxygenated enough. And um, if you have a very deep breath, that's what gives you strength and that's what gives you health. Because that's life. Well, life comes from within. What's life? Life is breath. 
Hashem is breath. So life represents, breath represents something internal. Something very deep, very internal. So Hashem's communication to the rest of the world, Hashem spoke and it came into being. Very external, very superficial. But with man, with the Jew, Hashem breathed. It's from within. It's an internal transmission. It's the breath of life. It's Hashem's inner life. And that's what Hashem transmits to us. And that becomes our life. God's breath becomes our life. That's who we are. That's our energy. That's our soul. And therefore, the Jew is not external. The whole essence of the Jew is internal. Something deep. Something internal. Something genuine. Something very profound. Not something external, mechanical. This is the very soul of the Jew. By way of analogy, there exists a vast difference in the case of mortal man between the breath issuing from his mouth while speaking and the breath of forceful blows. The breath that issues with his speech embodies the soul's power and life force only minimally. And that is only from the superficial aspect of the soul that dwells within him. He says very interesting, ma'at mizer. He says, it's a little very little, and from that also it's a little of a little, it's only minimal. Even from that little external force, from the most external part of the soul, even that, it's only the minimal part of that external part of the soul. But the breath that issues when he blows forcefully, from deep within himself, embodies the internal power and life force of the vivifying soul. Yes, it's external, but just like externally, when you breathe, you're expressing your life force. You're very life force. When you speak, you're expressing the most superficial part of you. And even that, just the bare minimum. You're just scraping the surface. So yes, it's an external expression. Breath is an external expression. And speech is an external expression. But this external expression reflects what's going on inside. When you speak, what are you transmitting? What are you touching? You're just scratching the surface. It's the most superficial external part. So you can talk and talk and talk and it means nothing. It has no effect on you. But breath, yes, it's physical, but it signifies your life, your breath of life. And that's why you can't, you can't do it for long. You do it for a minute and you're, you're already out of breath. You're, you're completely exhausted because it's an, a, a transmission from the inner part of the soul. In the very life itself, the breath of life. Uh, just as there exists a vast difference between male speaking and forceful blowing, precisely so in the analogy of creation, allowing for the infinite differentiations involved between creator and created, there exists a prodigious difference above. Right. So of course, we're not making any comparison between Hashem and us, but nevertheless, we created the image of God, and everything in this world is a parable. Everything in this world is here to help us understand what's really going on, because Everything in this world is really comes originates from the divine. So when you understand the parable, which we can relate to the parable, our own personal experience, that helps us understand the divine. So just like from our own personal experience, we know the difference between speech and breath. So this helps us understand also in the divine. Is when the Torah says that God spoke and it came into being. And when the Torah says that God breathed into man's nostrils. So the Torah is telling us something. 
and it's something we can relate to and connect with. That here God is transmitting the most external, superficial part of himself. And here God is transmitting his very being, his very essence, his very self. And, you know, in other words, there's an expression that what does God do? What's God busy doing? So if you ask the religious person, you ask the mystic, God is busy creating the universe. And you see how expansive the universe is, and how infinite the universe is, you can get a glimpse of how infinite God is. But the truth is, Judaism comes, the Torah says, this is not what God does. God is busy creating worlds. To God, all of creation is almost like an afterthought. It's like a person speaking. What's the big deal? How much do you invest in your speech? What does it mean to you? You know, no one's going to stop the press. There's a press conference. Spoke ten words. <laughs> Where's CNN? What's the, who, I mean, what is it? It means nothing. What difference does it make? We speak infinite words in our lifetime. Everyone speaks words. I mean, what does ten words? So the whole of creation, God created with ten words. What's the Torah telling us? That the whole of creation to God is, is inherently means nothing. It's not... It occupies God. It engages God. It's, 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 this is what God does. This is what a God does uh, do. What does a God do? He's busy creating a world, and it's a miracle. It's unbelievable to create a world and create such an infinitely complex world and to create such a spiritual world and higher levels of them, higher levels of consciousness and material worlds and spiritual worlds. This is what a God does. This is what engages God, and this is what God is busy with. Taurus says no. The whole universe, including the angels, was created with God's speech. What speech to us? Absolutely meaningless. External, superficial. I don't need it for myself. It means absolutely nothing to me. I don't invest anything of myself in the speech. That's why it doesn't exhaust me. It means nothing. So that's what the whole universe is to God. The exception is when you breathe, that's your breath of life. That's you. That's your being. That's your essence. That's what carries you. That's your life. That's your life force. That's you. Breathe. It's not only the brain. The breathing is the breath of life. That's actually the heart, the lungs. It's a combination, right? The, the, the brain, the lungs, the whole... Right? Right? The brain through the lungs. That provides the oxygen for the blood, etc. So the breath... The breath of life is something that comes from within. And that constitutes the soul of the Jew. That's why the Shabbat is something that's unique to the Jew. The Jew is married to the Shabbat. Only a Jew is allowed to keep Shabbat. What's unique about Shabbat? Why are the Jew and Shabbos like a married couple like this? Because six days a week, God creates the world. So we relate to God as the creator. God is creating the world. He's creating the universe. And our relationship to God is that God role plays as the creator. 
And that's our interaction with God. God is the creator. He's my creator. So I worship him. I have a relationship with him. I acknowledge him. But I can't get beyond that. I can't get beyond creator. That's our ceiling. That's our glass ceiling. God is our creator. And all of creation, including angels, all human beings, no matter how spiritual, how religious, how this is, we live within that framework. God is our creator, and we're the created, and that's our relationship. On Shabbos, God rested. What happens when a person rests? When, you, when you're doing something creative, you're writing, you're doing something creative. What happens when you rest? You withdraw. You go back into your being. Because you're, you're, this is not what you're about, just expressing yourself. That's something external to you. That's something that you're doing. You're role-playing, you're expressing yourself and writing, whatever it may be. But then when you rest, you withdraw. You go back to yourself. Just being, just being yourself. Not in relation to anything outside of you. Not how you relate to the world outside of you. When you're doing something creative, you're relating to the world outside of you. Whatever it is. When you're resting, you're not relating to the world outside of you, you're resting. You're withdrawing. You're rejuvenating, you're replenishing, you're going back to yourself. All that energy that you expended externally to interact, interface with the world around you, now you're withdrawing, you're coming back to yourself. To your being, to your essence. Not how you relate to the world outside of you, but just yourself. That completely transcends and beyond your interrelations with anything external. So on Shabbos, God rested. What do you mean God rested on Shabbos? God withdrew, so to speak, into Himself. Because God's being and God's essence, God is not about creating. That's the most external, superficial part of God. God spoke and the world came into being. God didn't work hard and needed a day of rest. He was exhausted. He needed a day of rest. The whole world came into being with ten words. But it means that here, God is role-playing as the Creator. And He's interacting with the world as the Creator. But that's a very tiny, insignificant, the most external, superficial part of God. God's ability to speak and God's ability to create. But God's essence, God's being, completely transcends. God is not about His interaction with, with external, with anything external. God's being, God's essence is Himself, being Himself. So when that energy, divine energy, withdraws and is restored and reconnected to, to God Himself, and God just being Himself. And this is what happens on Shabbos. And this is why a Jew celebrates Shabbos. Because the whole world could only relate to God as the Creator. They can't get beyond that because that's our whole frame of reference. That's our whole existence. We exist. We're here. And... God is our creator, and God is the original cause, and God is almighty, and God is omnipotent, and God is omniscient. But there's a glass ceiling. You can't get out of the box. You can't get beyond that, that frame of reference. Only the Jew, who, as he said here, we just learned, 
is a piece of Hashem. His soul is the divine name. His soul is God's breath, breath of life from within God. So therefore, the Jew could celebrate and connect to God, not the way God role plays as the creator, but the way God withdraws into himself, the way God transcends the whole external So it's on Shabbos you really see what a Jew is really all about. You really see that's when the Jew comes to life. But that's when you see what, is, what he's really made up of, what his soul is really all about, what his breath of life is all about, what his life force, what his energy is all about. That he's truly divine. And because he's truly divine, that's why we can connect to the essence of the divine, to Hashem. The way Hashem completely transcends creation. Beyond creation. It's not about creation. God withdraws into himself. And rest. That's the meaning of rest. Just like when we rest, we withdraw inward. We take all our energies that we expend externally, where we interface and interact with the world, and then we withdraw inward. And we have to withdraw inward, because if we don't withdraw inward, we cease to be effective. If, if you never rest, if you're just about external, you can't have an impact on the world. The only reason you can have an impact on the world is if you have a strong core, a strong center. If you don't have a strong core, you don't have a strong center, then you can't impact the world. The reason why you're able to be so creative and able to have an impact is because you have an internal, healthy sense of self. So therefore... It's a constant back and forth. That's why every week we have Shabbos. You expend yourself and then you withdraw inward. You exp- like you breathe in and you breathe out. You expend yourself and then you draw inward. Because in order for the divine creative energy, the reason why God is able to create the world, the creative energy He spoke and came to being, is precisely because there is a day of rest where the energy reconnects with its source and is connected with the essence of God, which transcends creation. It's not about creation. It's not how God defines himself. So it's interesting. Only who has the greatest impact on the outside world? The person who's not defined by the world. <laughs> who is the ultimate leader, the greatest leaders? Were those who didn't want to be leaders. Those who, who didn't need to be leaders. They didn't define themselves by the public. They didn't define themselves if they're popular or not popular. They couldn't care less. They had a rich inner life. And those are the people that had the greatest impact. Because when you have a, that inner core. So that's the concept of rest. Going back to yourself. So on Shabbos, God, so to speak, goes back to himself. To that level that transcends creation. He's not about a creator. That's not what God is about. He creates. That's the most incidental, the most external, the most superficial part of God. As he says, it's the most external part. And even that, it's just the minimal... Just like when a person speaks. Speech is the most external part of a person. And, what do you, and even in speech, what do you invest in ten words? It's, it's nothing. It's minimal. So what, what have you invested of yourself in that speech? Nothing. But breath comes from within. Breath is you. That's your life. That's your breath of life. So the Jew 
is not only rooted in God's breath of life, but the God's breath of life is actually the soul of the truth in this world. And that's what animates him. That's, that's his energy, that's his life force. And we see that. He doesn't discuss it here, but we see that on Shabbos. You see, when a Jew celebrates Shabbos, that's when you see what a Jew is really all about. That he is literally a piece of Hashem. Their soul is literally made up of the name, of the divine name. Our soul is literally made up of the divine name. If every Jew knew and realized that their soul literally was made up of the divine name, it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't even be possible not to keep the Shabbos. Because, you know, if you really understood and experienced what you're really all about, the Shabbos is the holiest day, and the Shabbos is when you touch the divine. Precisely so, in the analogy of creation, allowing for the infinite uh, differentiation involved between creator and um, created, and there exists a prodigious difference above between all the hosts of heaven, even the spiritual beings like angels who were created ex in helio. Uh, meaning and the soul of man. He says the difference between all of creation, the host of heaven. You know, Kant says, he says, how do I know there's a God? He says, I look at the stars above and I look at the Jew. When I see the stars above and I see how there's no death or diminishing. You know, you see the wondrous nature of the sun and the moon and the stars. So obviously, I see the hand of the Creator. Just by looking at the stars. And you look up. That's man's gift, that we have the ability to look up. Animals go through their entire life and never once look up. Man has the gift to lift your head out of the iPod and to look up. <laughs> see the stars, see the heavens. And the, the moon. Uh, yeah, months. yeah. Lift up. To look up and to wonder and to see the infinite vastness of the universe and to see how these huge bodies and anyone who understands astronomy and understands how you know, how it's all so coordinated and, and the movements of the stars and the movements of the sun and how quickly they move and you know, millions of miles quickly and how it's all so coordinated. And, you know, you look at, this, at the stars, you know, the, the, it's, it says that the sun goes against, naturally the sun should have gone from west to east. Instead, the sun goes from east to west. Why? Because it says the Shekhinah, God's presence is in the West, like the Western Wall. And therefore, the sun is worshipping God, so it's rushing and it's bowing down to God, so it goes against its nature. And instead of going from West to East, it goes from East to West. So anyone who understands astronomy, and just by looking up and seeing the wondrous stars, we can go to the planetarium, and you see the wonders, the infinite complexity of the universe, and it's just zillions and trillions, I and mean, it's beyond, beyond anything we can comprehend.
you know, just in our galaxy and how many galaxies are there. And it's, just, it's just so vast. Because just by looking up, anyone who's open-minded, how could you not believe in God? You know, as Einstein said, how could you look at this universe and not believe in God? I mean, this, this, this couldn't just have happened. You see the intelligence and the vast intelligence. and So, just by looking up in the stars, you already see God. They point to God. If you look at it honestly and objectively, they can inspire you to believe in God. Just, just by looking up and being aware of the stars and what he calls the host of heaven. But even the angels, angels which are pure spirits, pure energy, pure spirits. But even they, they were created something from nothing. So there's a huge difference between the angel and man. And who is superior? The angel or man? Man. And that's true even, even of the nunjit. It's much more difficult to be a mensch than it is to be an angel. <laughs> Who are the angels? I mean, are the angels reincarnated souls? No, no, no. Or are no, they no. specifically created? There's a, whole, there's a whole, whole universe. There's many different universes of angels. We are not alone in the universe. There, there's... there's of course, there's life. Not material life, but there's spiritual life. There's infinite angels and different worlds and palaces and different levels of angels. And we're going to study some all the different types of angels and levels. There's a whole universe. We are at the, at the very end of the universe, the lowest level of consciousness, the, the, material, the materialistic end of the universe. But in the spiritual realms, there's infinite Levels and angels and and you know the Talmud says that the angel, the mind of an angel, is the equivalent of a third of this world. In other words, if you took all the brains of over two billion people and you put it together, the mind of an angel that that would be the equivalent of one mind of an angel. So we could we can understand that their understanding of physics of reality is so beyond our comprehension their understanding of, of, of the universe, and their pure spirits and pure energy, you know, just because we can't see an angel doesn't mean angels don't exist. It's like that famous story with the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, that he, was this, he had this, this discussion with this enlightened Jew who said he doesn't believe in angels. You know, he's a modern, secular scientist. He doesn't believe in these myths, angels. So, and they were traveling. So the, so the Rebbe Rishab says, you know, we are now traveling together. So we have three different levels of consciousness. We have the horses. In those days, they travel with horse and buggy. What are the horses thinking of? <laughs> thinking of hey, and when, they get, when they get to town, oh yeah, they're going to have a feast. They're going to have the best hay. They can't wait. And that's what occupies their mind. They can't think anything else. Morning to night, that's all they think about is the hay. The wagon driver 
was thinking about he's going to get paid at the end of this trip and he's going to hit the tavern and he's going to drink boy is he going to drink and he'll have the time of his life maybe he'll save some money and send his wife and kids <laughs> and and here we're having this discussion we're discussing very lofty ideas now just because the horse can't even imagine that there's a reality beyond hay does that mean that, that all that exists is hay so there are people who are very materialistic what they see is what they get whatever I see that, that's what exists whatever I don't see doesn't exist so they can't even comprehend that there's other worlds other realities other intelligent beings not material intelligent beings but spiritual beings angels different dimensions different levels different realities higher levels of consciousness they can't even begin to imagine although we know that in the spectrum let's say in the spectrum of light we see at the very end the bottom of the spectrum there's so many dimensions to the spectrum of light that we can't even see beyond the human eye the same thing is even with the human ear there's so many dimensions to hearing animals are able to hear hear uh, frequencies that we can't hear teenagers are able to hear frequencies that we adults can't hear (laughs) (laughs) thank you I'm a teenager that's nice (laughs) so we are just literally at the tip of the tip of the iceberg. We are just at the very end, the materialization of the universe, the most the material part of the universe. But there's so many levels, spiritual levels beyond, and they are they they are embodied by the angels. These are angels. They have angels, pure energy. You have energy angels of love. You have energies angels of strength, of awe. You have angels of mercy and compassion. All the different angels and energies and angels are also the um, the emissary, God's emissaries and agents, and you know they uh, they transmit the blessings, and they also elevate our prayers, and so this whole universe. But we don't see it. Just because we don't see it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just because we're thinking about hay, and that's our frame of reference, doesn't mean that the professors are not sitting there and and talking about the lofty, most lofty concepts. So there are different dimensions of reality. There's a whole universe, people, not by, by people, but by angels. It's just so, but even the world of angels, as pure spiritual as they are, pure spirits and pure energy, and, and, and a, a dimension that's completely beyond our comprehension. And yet even they are created something from nothing, and... They derive their life and existence from the external aspect of the life force, issuing forth from the infinite one to vitalize creation. This external aspect of the life-giving power is called the breath of his mouth, as it were, as the verse states, by the breath of his mouth all their hosts were created. They were created through God's speech. Or the breath of his mouth, meaning through his speech. And... Speech is the most external part of the person. So even the angels, even the pure spirits, even the higher levels of consciousness, mystical realms, spiritual realms, to God, all of this is the most external, superficial part of Hashem. And in chapter 2, there... He used a different analogy. The analogy there was 
like the difference between the child and the student. The Jewish people are called God's children. And the angels are like, the analogy is of the teacher and student. The difference in the teacher and student relationship and parent-child relationship. Teacher-student relationship is very close, very intimate, but ultimately it's external. Versus the parent-child relationship is really the most intimate relationship of all. And that's why, as the expression says, you can't, you can't give someone a head. A teacher can only teach a student who has a brain. But if the, teacher, the student has no brain, I can't teach him. The teacher can take the brain of the student and shape it and form it and develop it and cultivate it. But if the person, if the student has no innate intelligence, I'm talking to the wall, and I can teach from today till tomorrow, I can't help him. I can only help a student who's, who can relate to me, who has a brain, who has a capacity, and then I can help him cultivate and push him and help him develop his ability. And I can teach him wisdom and, and I can give him a lot. And that transmission is a spiritual transmission. The teacher is transmitting wisdom. It's all spiritual. In the parent-child relationship, however, the transmission is physical. It's not just spiritual. Parents give the brain to their children. (laughs) They give everything they have to their children. That's why children many many times surpass their parents. How can you surpass your parents? You can only give what you have. How can parents give something to their children that they don't have? The answer is because parents give everything they have to their children. They give their raw potential to their children. Maybe the parent never developed that raw potential. The child can take that raw potential and run with it and be far exceed and far surpass his parent. Ultimately, everything he got, the raw material he got from his parents, because in the, in the transmission of parents to children, the parent gives his essence to his children. It's not an external. And it's precisely because the transmission of parent to child is a transmission of the essence from within. That's why it's physical. The transmission of teacher-student is pure spiritual. But it's external. The transmission of parent-child is physical, but it's from within. It's the essence. So the fact that man is material and angels are spiritual externally is because angels are greater than man. They're closer to God. They're pure spirits. They're pure energy. They sit and meditate 24-7. Thousands of years. No break, no interruption. And yet, ultimately, as we just read, it's external. It's all external. It's like a parent-child, it's like a a teacher-student relationship. It's external. It's not an internal transmission. It comes from God's speech. Versus the child. Although we are material, it's a material transmission. You give birth to a child. But that transmission comes from within, comes from the very essence. So, externally, yes. Externally, the angel is superior. And we need the angel. And we depend on the angel. We welcome them Friday night before the meal. We, we, uh, they take our prayers and cause our prayers to be elevated. They are the conduit through which God transmits His blessings to us. 
But ultimately, it's an external relationship. God's relationship to the angels is external. He only scratched the surface of that. God spoke and it came into being. Versus the Jewish soul is like a child, comes from the essence. So, yes, we are physical, we are material, we're no angels, very far from angels. We're all too worthy. But nevertheless, we have a connection to the essence of God. So that's the analogy he used in chapter 2. Here he's using the analogy, the difference between breath and speech. That the angels come from God's speech, which is external. And man's soul, God breathed into his nostrils. He breathed into his nostrils. That our soul, our life force here and now in this world, as we live in our bodies, what is our life force? God's breath. That is our life force. That is our energy. That is our breath of life. That is really who we are. That is our core. That is our essence. Here and now, in this physical world. So even though we're in the physical world, and we're very physical, and we're very down to earth, but nevertheless... We are unchanged. It's not only that our source is divine, but even our soul has not changed. Our soul remains a piece of the divine. Remains the divine name. And that is our substance, and that is our essence, and that is who we are. It's a very very revolutionary concept. And it completely changes how you look at yourself and how you look at, at your fellow Jew. You realize what that it's a uh, the Jewish soul is literally a piece of the divine, and that is our life force. And that is our breath of life, and that's why he's using the analogy here of breath. God blew into Adam's nostrils, and he came alive. Because that is our soul, God's breath. That is who we are. This is the creative power embodied in the letters of the ten utterances. So he says that God created all of the hosts, meaning the heavenly hosts, the physical heavenly hosts, the stars, the sun, the moon, the stars, and also the spiritual heavenly hosts, all the angels. He created it, also it says, with his breath. So we said that man is unique. Adam is unique. He was created with God's breath. We find that God created his host also with his breath. So he says, no. The verse says, the breath of his mouth. In other words, it's the breath that you invest in your speech. When you speak, it's not just speech. You, have to, you, have, you need some breath in order to speak. So it's the breath that you put into the speech. Because the speech itself, the letters and the words that you form, that you use, they're like external. They're, they're just words and letters. It's the breath that you put into the speech. That's what animates the words and letters. and that's what. But ultimately, even the breath that you put into your speech is the most external, superficial part of you. That's why you can speak and speak and speak and speak and you don't lose your breath. Because how much of your breath are you investing in your speech? It's not from within. It's external and superficial. So yes, it's true. Even all of the hosts of heaven are created with God's breath. Not just the words and letters. And that's why in a certain sense, there's a, there's a divine connection. 
When you look at the stars, you see the divine. You're inspired. The angels are obviously divine because they're from God's breath. Not like in this world. In this world, the material world. Here, it's like all we see are the letters and words. We don't see the connection of the divine breath. All we see are the letters and words. You don't see the inner content. It's like a person reading, you ever tried, tried reading a Japanese newspaper? You can see the letters, but you have no clue what it means. There's no content. All you see is letters. So this world, which is the most external, superficial, material, dense world, it's like we're looking at the letters. We see the material world around us, and that's all we see. We don't notice that it's divine, that the tree it's a miracle that it's, that it's alive, that it's growing, that the animal, that life is a miracle, that it's divine, that, you, that we are alive, that it's divine. We're completely oblivious. All we see is the reality, the material existence. And that's all we notice, and that's all we pay attention to, and that's all we, we see. So this is like the letters and the words without any breath. There's no inner, there's nothing from within. All there is is the most external, superficial, that's why this world is so dense and materialistic, and it completely obscures, and completely blacks out any internal connection. It's as if it's an end in itself. I just see ego, I just see I, I just see it exists. Why does it exist? There's no why, there's no rhyme, there's no reason. I exist, and so does the tree, and so does everything else. So this is without the breath, but in what the verse says, King David says, that with the breath of his mouth he creates all the hosts, the heavenly hosts. Because there, there is already some internal connection. The breath of God. There is already, because you look at the stars, you see something divine, you're inspired. It's not just external and material. You look up, if you really look up, especially if you're an astronomer and you're aware, and you realize, what's, you realize what's, what, you, what you're seeing. You're like, you look back in, in, in astonishment and wonder and you see Hashem. It points to the divine. Let alone the heavenly hosts, pure spirits, pure energies, angels, surely point to the divine and inspire. But nevertheless, it's only the breath of his mouth, which is external and superficial. What does God invest? Just like when a person speaks, he's investing in breath, but just to speak. So it's the most external part of it. So even the heavenly hosts are only connected to the most external part of Hashem. The breath of His mouth. These letters being in the nature of vessels and the drawing down and so forth of the life force as explained in Lakuti Amari. We study this in part 2, chapter 11. You can find the lessons in Tanya. That the uh, shape and form of the letters, all the letters share one thing in common. The same breath. But it's how the breath passes through your mouth, your tongue, your lips, your palate. How that's what creates the different shapes and forms of the letters. If you touch your lips, you make, you make a b, b sound. You know, and then you have, if, if you put your teeth together, all the different ways, or from your throat. But the breath is the same. When the breath passes through the different movements of the mouth, that creates the different forms and shapes of the letters. 
so too. There is the divine energy that creates all of the universe. The divine energy, God's breath, is really undifferentiated. It's Hashem, it's undifferentiated, it's infinite, it's undefined. But when the divine energy is channeled, so to speak, through the words and letters, which gives the breath a shape and forms the different letters, and then you combine the different letters differently, creates different words, which have different meanings and different names, that's what creates the whole universe. So even though, it's amazing, even though the whole universe is made up of, I mean, in the Hebrew language, there are 22 sounds. Basically, any language is more or less the same 22 sounds. How many books were written just in these 22 letters, 22 sounds? How do you get from these 22 sounds? You get this infinite library. Or how many musical notes are there? From these few musical notes, you have an infinite amount of song. Every type and category you can imagine, each type and category itself is infinite and all from these finite little... Because the breath of life is infinite. But when the breath of life is defined and shaped through the letters and the words, and so this is what gives the shape to the universe. And then when you combine the letters and all the different combinations, that's what creates this infinite universe, this pluralistic and infinite universe as we know it, which is so differentiated, and each individual has its own characteristic and its own unique characteristic trait. But the truth is, at the source, just like when a person speaks, it's from the same breath. And the breath is one breath. And the breath is then differentiated and defined and, and channeled through, through the different movements of the mouth. So again, everything in the physical world is an analogy to Hashem. The breath of Hashem, Hashem speaks, the breath is infinite and undefined and undifferentiated. And that's the same source of everything that exists in the universe, from the amoeba that, all the way up to the angel all made up of the same thing, the breath. So what differentiates the whole universe? How do we get such an infinitely complex and pluralistic universe and so many dimensions? This all comes from the words and letters. When the breath goes through the words and letters, and then the different combinations of the words and letters, and then from these 22 letters you have infinite universe. From these few musical notes you have this infinite world of music. That's, that's the astonishing thing. But if you would... So the angels feel it. The angels sense it. That's why they're connected to the breath. They sense the miracle of existence and the miracle of life and the miracle. That's why the, uh, King David says in chapter 33 in Psalms, this, the breath of their mouth, all the heavenly hosts, because they appreciate it. They feel, they realize of the whole universe and there's so many infinite amount of angels and yet all of these come from, from the 22 letters the divine letters and the breath that, 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 that channel through these letters that shape them and define them and, and the different combinations it's really astonishing it's divine it's miraculous but we are like blind, deaf and dumb in the material world we're completely dense completely thick like we don't we don't respond we don't react we're not inspired. We don't see it. We don't even notice it. All we notice is the words and the letters. Like the hay. Like the hay, right? <laughs> in the ten utterances, are the, uh, are the 22 sounds in those ten utterances? Sure, sure. They make up, the letters, the 22 sounds, make up the different utterances, the words. The utterances are the combination of different words. 
And he said, also of the ten utterances, he says the utterance itself creates like this, the moon and the sun because since it's a word, so even though it's only a word and it's channels already formed and defined and shaped, nevertheless, they receive directly, you know, the breath and the word. So therefore, there's a, there's a direct... And therefore, you, you look at the sun, you look at the moon, it connects you directly to Hashem. Everything else that exists in the universe are derived from the ten utterances. And as we learned in the second part of Tanya, how at the end of chapter 1, the different ways you can derive the letters, the numerical value, and the different combinations of the words, and substitution. And by the time it gets diluted, like the word stone. The word stone doesn't say anywhere in the Ten Commandments. It's all there. Everything that exists is found in the, in the Ten Utterances. But how you get, how you derive from the Ten Utterances to, let's say, a stone, it's the substitution of letters and the different combination of letters and the numerical value of letters. And by the time you do all of that, it's become so diluted and so far from its source that you don't even sense its source. And that's why you look at a stone and you don't see anything. You don't see that the stone is really alive and dynamic and vibrant. You just see a dead, inert stone. And you look at this world, you see a fragmented world, a dense, dark, materialistic world. You don't see how the world is pulsating with godliness and with life. You don't sense sense that, even though it really is. So, So this is the life that encloses, encloses in the Ten Commandments. And, um, and this is the breath of his mouth that brought about calls of um, all the hosts. And the angels? Referring to specifically, right, the angels and even, even the heavenly hosts, even the material heavenly hosts, the stars, the moon, the sun, was just looking at that, they're so huge and they're so essential and they're so, and the fact that they you know, that they go on and on. There's no diminishing and there's no... They, you know, they appear... They almost appear as if, as if they would be eternal. And you see the infinite complexity of the universe. And you see how quickly the sun goes and, and goes against its nature instead of from west to east. It goes from east to west and only because it's bowing down to Hashem. As we learned earlier in the Tanya, in the first part of Tanya, chapter 42, that um, it's like you're walking into the king's palace and you see, you don't see the king, but you see all these great ministers bowing down to the king. It would leave a great impression on you. Even without seeing the king, without appreciating, just by seeing all these great people bowing down to the king, you say, hey, wait a minute, the king must be very special. All these great people are bowing down to the king. So when you see all the stars and the moon and the sun, how they're worshipping Hashem and bowing down to Hashem, and how, you know, that alone inspires you. It makes, it makes you realize they're all bowing down to Hashem. It, you know, it gives you an inkling, a glimpse how great Hashem is. There were, I was an astronomer on radio this week. I was listening to it's, it's The whole new theory now is that this is not the own universe. It's, in, it's interesting. The New York Times wrote a few years ago that the modern physics is beginning to sound more and more like the Kabbalah. <laughs> ten-string theory, the ten-svirot. That's what he just says here, the ten-svirot, the... So, um, the similarities are astounding. Yeah. All roads lead to Jerusalem. 
when the scientist is coming to the same conclusions as the, as the rabbis, the Torah, then you know, you know, Mashiach is around the corner. Or actually, um, it's interesting. So, so this is a the, yeah. That's the world of angels, and that's the world of higher realms. And the truth is, anyone that's involved in astronomy, especially today, when you see how infinitely vast, how how. It's just mind-boggling, the numbers and the... You know, you're dealing here with something that's so beyond... I mean, not to see the hand of God, it's, that's an act of faith. I mean, you have to have faith not to believe in God. <laughs> you know, to be an atheist, you have to have pure faith, blind faith. What we see today, what we know today, I mean, just our galaxy alone. You know, how, how, and this is just one, one little galaxy. And then... It's just it's astronomers are dealing with numbers that are just boggle the human mind. So, as Khan says, you look up in heaven. If you're aware, especially if you're aware, how could you not see God? So they point to God. But nevertheless, it's all external. Why? Because they point to God, the Creator. That there has to be intelligence. How could there not be intelligence? <laughs> how could anyone say that... This, this just happened by itself. I mean, it's just, it's an insult to the intelligence of a five-year-old child. I mean, I mean, all of this just happened just like that. You see the infinite intelligence in every detail, especially in astronomy. How could you not? So you realize that there has to be a creative intelligence. But ultimately it's external because you're dealing with God as the creator. Yes, you believe that there's a God, and you believe that God created the world, and He spoke, and the world came into being. But that's not what God is all about. You're not touching God's essence. God's essence remains completely, completely, you know, transcendent. And this is where the Jew comes. That's what we'll learn next week, the Jewish soul. That the Jewish soul is in touch with God's essence. Even while in this world, even while we're living in this world, in the here and now, down to earth, our feet firmly planted in this world, there's something divine, there's something about the Jew that just touches the divine essence, is touched by the divine essence, is inspired by the divine essence, and just relates and connects to not just the dimension of God, the way God role plays and God projects himself, but the way God is for himself where he's completely transcendent from anything external and that's really what Shabbos is that's why Shabbos is such a holy day when a Jew celebrates with Hashem it's the Jew and God because you're not celebrating God as the creator Shabbos we have access to the level of God where he transcends being creator and the rest of the world doesn't have access to that because all created beings including angels live within the framework of their existence what's the framework of existence God spoke and they came into being or even the breath of God's mouth but that's about as high as they can get I mean that's, that's you can't jump out of yourself you can't go beyond that glass ceiling a Jew not because we're any smarter or better or, or more better looking, but because a Jew has the divine breath inside of us, 
we have the, the divine name inside of us. That is our breath of life. That is our soul. That is who we are. That is our core, our essence, our center of being. And therefore, we're able to relate to God, not as the creator, but as God himself. And therefore, it's an end in itself. That's why it's compared to a marriage. Marriage is an end in itself. It's not just a means to an end. It's not an activity. Work is an activity. Career is an activity. Even if it engages you 18 hours a day, it's an activity. It's something that you do. It's a means to an end. Marriage is not a means to an end. It's an end. It's not, okay, so what are we going to do now? <laughs> We're together? What are we going to do? Being together. That, that's, that's the end. Celebrating each other and celebrating together and celebrating with each other. So everything in the universe is a means to an end. That's why everything in the universe has to keep busy. Because you, know, you have to justify your existence. You exist because I have to do something, I have to accomplish something. The, the uh, Shabbos is just being. It's not a means to an end. It's just being. Celebrating the relationship, celebrating the marriage, just being together. An end in itself, not just a means to an end. And that's why the Jew is the eternal people. Just like God is indestructible. The Jew, the conscience of the world, is also indestructible. As Hitler found out, Thousand year, thousand year reign lasted uh, too long, twelve years, and the Jewish people are still here. Adam was not, not a Jew. Well, Adam, if he didn't sin, Adam embodied. Oh, the only would have been Adam. There wouldn't have been Adam and Chava would have that would have been it. it. Yeah. So they encompassed all the Jewish souls. Adam was like an archetype. He encompassed all the Jewish souls. That's why um, in the cave of Machpelah, who's buried with Adam and Chava? Only the Jews. Abraham, Sarah. Okay, but then, then Rivka, Yitzhak. All the progeny that came after. Yeah, but this, this, the, this. The Gentiles also got okay. the, the breath. No, no. This quality, this quality, this quality of the breath, and the soul, and the piece of the divine essence. This. Um, this is, this is unique to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and that's why they are buried together. Does Adam belong to the Jews? Why is Adam buried together with the patriarchs and the matriarchs? Adam is universal. He belongs to mankind. Noah is not buried with him. Noah is universal. Every human being is called a Noahide. Every human being is a descendant of Noah. Noah was a non-Jew, and he single-handedly saved the world, and he was created in the image of God, and he... He's the role model of all 7 billion people. But Adam ultimately is connected to the Jewish people. Because that idea of breathing into his, his nostrils and, and breath of life, and God transmitting his essence, this is this soul, this divine soul, this is the portion of Hashem that's within each and every Jew. This is the divine name that's within each and every Jew. And that, so that part of Adam was transmitted 
after the sin, so God searched for a family a, who can contain that essence of Adam. So there were ten generations from Adam to Noah. He sifted them all, and he was only left with Noah. And then there were ten generations from Noah to Abraham, and then you know he sifted them all, and you know they had the Tower of Babel, and then he chose Abraham. And Abraham and his family promised, you're going to be the one who's going to restore the world back to the Garden of Eden. You're going to bring the world back to the way it was meant to be, the way it once was, and the way inevitably it will be once again. You're going to bring the world back to the state of Adam, the way he was in the Garden of Eden before the sin, and even higher than that, to a greater level, because there will never be another destruction, exile, and there won't even be the possibility of another exile. And that's the mission of the Jew. So this is Adam. Adam when God breathed into Adam's nostrils, he was in the Garden of Eden. And then after the sin, he was expelled from the Garden of Eden. Which nation, who, their mission is to restore the world back to the Garden of Eden? That's the Jewish people. So this quality of Adam, that God blew into his nostrils, this is the soul. He embodied the soul of all the Jewish people. And this is transmitted through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rebekah, Rachel, and Leah, to all the descendants forever and ever. So where does a non-Jew get his breath? Okay, so even an angel. Where does an angel get his breath? An angel gets his breath. It's the breath. It's God's speech. So a non-Jew gets it from the speech? From God's speech. God spoke, said, and it came into being. So he, he writes. It's God's speech, which is the most, which is external part of God. Versus the neshama, the Jewish soul, is God's breath. It's internal. It's a big responsibility to live up to. <laughs> to know that we have God's breath inside of us. And we have God's name inside of us. And that is our core and essence. Whether we like it or not, appreciate it or not, it doesn't change the fact. <coughs> that's who we are. The non-Jew sees it. And um, the more we see it, the more we appreciate it, and the more we tap into it, the quicker we'll fulfill our mission, divine mission, of inspiring all seven billion people and restoring, bringing the world back to the Garden of Eden, recreating the Garden of Eden in this world. I keep going back to the hay. And the, <laughs> it's such a, a strong message that we're really traveling along like the horses. <laughs> <laughs> this class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.